0: Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. All right, so last week you guys um, all voted on doing the names of God. And I have never taught this subject before. So it's going to be fun for me to do this. And so tonight we're just going to look at three names of God. Um, I'm not sure how many we're going to do each night, but let me just kind of start with some facts here. Uh, Just the name God, when you look at God the Father, there are over 211 names for God the Father in the Bible. Now when you add Jesus and the Holy Spirit to that, to the mix, there's another 489. So when you add up all the names of God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the the Trinity, you have over 700 names for God in the Bible, which is amazing. 700 names. Now, here's a truth that I want us to begin with tonight, and that's this. Let me give you an illustration from Jonathan Edwards, okay? Jonathan Edwards was a um, he was the father of the first great awakening in America. So in the 1740s um, in Northampton, Massachusetts, he was a pastor, and under his preaching, um, the whole Nor- the whole New England just basically had about seven years of revival of spiritual awakening of salvations. And so, um, and to this day, even people that aren't Christians believe that he is America's greatest thinker, greatest. Um, Christian and non-Christian. He, he had a brilliant mind. And he has some famous sermons, okay? So you probably, maybe in high school, had to read, what's, what's his famous sermon that everybody knows of? Everybody know Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon? Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. You've ever heard that one? It's, you know, basically, that's the one that everybody, you know, so that's his famous one. He's got some other famous sermons, but there's a sermon that he preached, A Divine and Supernatural Light, where he gives this famous illustration of honey, And let me tell you his illustration, because I think it's going to help us tonight. He says there's a huge difference between knowing what honey is and actually tasting it and enjoying it. Is there a difference? Knowing what honey is would be what? Well, we can scientifically say honey does what? comes from bees... There's a chemical process that causes the honey to go there. Sometimes it's, it's brown. Sometimes it's gold. Um, it's a goopy substance. Um, it, it's supposed to taste good and be really sweet. We know what honey is. Okay? You can cognitively know what honey is. You can study honey. You can know all about honey. You can read about honey in a book. You can watch the doc, you, know, you can watch Nat Geo and find a documentary on honey or beekeeping. Uh, but does that do you any good just to know about honey? When you take the spoon and you dip it into really good honey, like if you get homemade, like there's some. What's a lady at your school that gives us homemade? not homemade honey, but she gives she gives us local honey. Yeah, homemade honey. She gives us local honey from from local hives here. So, yeah, her hives, and it's really really good. It's like um, so when you take that honey and you put it on the spoon, and maybe you put it on a biscuit, or you put it on a you know toast, or you you just eat it off the spoon and you taste the honey, what does it do to you? You're like, wow. I knew of honey, but now I know honey. I've tasted honey. And not only do I taste it, but it's sweet. It's going down good. I'm experiencing it to the max. Okay? So he goes on and gives this huge illustration of honey, and then he ties it back to our knowledge of God. Can you know about God? Can you know facts about God? Can you study God? Can you read in your Bible and, and know what the Bible says about God? Yes, but is there a difference between knowing about God and knowing God, tasting and seeing that the Lord is good, experiencing Him for who He is? There's, there's a big difference, isn't there, not? okay. That's what divides a Christian from a non-Christian. There's a lot of people that know who God is and they can even study God but we who are Christians have what? We've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Now, even after we've become a Christian, are there times where our understanding of God is sweetened because we've experienced Him more deeply? Okay. So how do you experience God more deeply? You get to know Him more deeply from His Word. And one of the ways that God has chosen to reveal Himself to us is by giving us different names that relate to His character. Now, let's just stop and admit something. Are we finite creatures that don't have much knowledge about God? Would you all agree with that? Okay, we're, we're creation. We, everything there is to know about God, we will never know, okay? We're never going to know everything about God. We can't fully comprehend His majesty, His glory, His holiness. But in His mercy, what has God done to give us a glimpse of Himself? Well, in the Old Testament, he kind of showed up sometimes and spoke. He showed up in a cloud. He showed up in a burning bush, Um, a voice from the mountain. Okay, does God do that now? Not, Not normally. Okay, how does God communicate to us now? Through his Bible. Okay, so we have a written record of who God is. And even a written record in and of itself, this is what John Calvin says the Bible is. You know, when you go up to a baby and you start talking baby talk to a baby. What does baby talk to a baby? You know, you're like, you're not really making sense, but you're just kind of goo goo guy. You know, you're, you're, you're baby talking to, to make sure like mama, dada. You're, you're using words that a baby can understand. Calvin says that's what God has done in the Bible. He's he's so high and infinite that when he writes, when he's written the Bible, it's like God's using baby talk, because we can't get all of him. So what we're reading is God's baby talk to us. It's like God's going, goo, goo, ga, ga, mama, because that's all we can understand. So when we read the Bible, God has condescended to give us just a small glimpse of how magnificent he is, and it's almost like baby talk. That's that's Calvin's analogy. And so um, when God speaks through his word, he's given us his name. Now, in our culture, names don't mean that much. Now, you may have been named after your uncle or you may have been named after a family member, but we, in our culture, the Hebrew culture, names meant something. When you name somebody, it wasn't just their name, but it revealed their character or who that person was going to grow up to be. For example, does anybody know the etymology of my name, Sean? Anybody know where it comes from? It's Irish. It's an Irish name. And it comes from the English, John, or the German, Johan, or the Hebrew, John. <laughs> Do you know what, the Apostle John, it's a Hebrew word. Okay. Does anybody know what John means? John. The Lord is gracious. That's what the word John is. The Lord is gracious. So, the Lord is gracious is John in Hebrew it went to German Johann to English John to Irish Sean So I'm named Sean because my parents literally like Sean Connery of James Bond and I was born when <laughs> Diamonds are Forever came out in 1971 and they really liked the name so I'm named after James Bond character and so thankfully I like James Bond I'm a big James Bond fan because my parents were but was my name does my name have anything to do with the etymology of John and the Lord is gracious? Not not really. Um, what about Aidan, my son Aiden? Anybody know what Aiden means? I know Don does. It's Irish. It means bringer of fire, or little fire, or but we like to call it, the warmth of the home. <laughs> That's the other name for warmth of the home. But it's related to fire. It goes back to the etymology of fire. And so, when when Aidan was little, was he? He was sometimes a little fire. But we like to think of him as warmth of the home. Okay, <laughs> Zachary, my other son, Zachary. Okay, Zachary comes from the Old Testament character or name Zachariah. Okay, Zachariah. Does anybody know what Zachariah means? I know Don does because we've named, named our boy. Zachary was born on Memorial Day weekend. His birthday's May 25th, 2000. Zachariah means the Lord will remember. So we kind of named him sort of because we like the name Zachary, but it's also that image that God will remember, Memorial Day. It's, it's a day of remembering. God's going to remember. Now, obviously, Don, my wife, does anybody know what her name means. It's named after a dish detergent, right? No, no, it's not. It's named after a sunrise. No, it's not. Her name is an old, her name is an old English name. Her name is an old English name that deals with the sunrise. Okay, so, so yeah, dawn is an old English term that means sunrise or the dawn of a new day. And so um, there's just the name dawn. And so um, I like Dawn's name because she brings sun light, and sunshine to my life, so every day, and she's also clean, like dish detergent, (laughs) I'm just joking, so so anyway, in our culture, I'm just giving her a hard time, I know, I'm sorry, so tonight, um, when we talk about God's name, we need to we need to kind of go back into the world of the old testament especially where names meant something and so when god's going to give his name it usually means it's more than just hey my name's bob or my name's tom it it when god's going to give a name it's going to reveal something about who he is and you're going to go back to the original language especially in the hebrew because we're going to look in the Old Testament tonight and see really what that name means. But before we do that, I want to just give you some verses tonight that speak about the name of the Lord. Okay, so we're going to be kind of all over the Bible tonight, mainly in the Old Testament because that's where it starts. But here's some, na- here's some statements about the name. Now, um, Exodus, if you've been reading through Exodus lately, um, God says he's going to do what to Pharaoh? I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart over and over again. But ultimately, why does God say he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart? And why is God going to release the Israelites out of captivity through the Red Sea and through the Passover? In Exodus 9, 16, God is speaking to Moses about his relationship with Pharaoh during the the plagues. And God says, but for this purpose, he's speaking to Pharaoh here. But for this purpose, I've raised you up, Pharaoh, to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So what two words do you see about God? Power and name. So there's power in God's name And God desires for his name to be proclaimed in all the earth because he's the God of heaven and earth. He wants his name to extend across the whole world so that that's why he does it. So his name can be proclaimed. Does that mean that God just wants people to say, God? (laughs) What does it mean? His name means his, in this case, his power, his majesty. Okay? Okay obviously, one of the Ten Commandments is you shall not misuse the name of the Lord. Now, you can take that two different ways. Actually, let's turn there real quick. This wasn't in my notes, but I just thought about it. If we're talking about the name of the Lord, we probably need to go to one of the commandments that addresses His name. So Exodus 20 is where we find the Ten Commandments. In Exodus 20... Verse 7, Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. This is the, the third of the Ten Commandments. So the first of the commandments is you'll have no other God. Secondly, He's not make an image of an idol and bow down and worship that idol. Here's, here's the third commandment, Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Okay, some translations say you shall not misuse the Lord's name. Okay, so we've got two words there. We've got you can misuse it. It's the same Hebrew word. You can misuse God's name, or you can use it in vain. Now, oftentimes, what do we automatically think of when we hear this? When we hear this um, this commandment, what's the first thing that we all normally grew up thinking? What is it? When we, when we take the Lord's name in vain, what do we normally think of? Cussing, Cussing using God's name as a curse word whether it's gd or jc i mean you know you're using god's name and you hear it all the time i mean it's on movies i mean it's using god's name as a cuss word or flippantly like maybe not even just using it as a cuss word but maybe just throwing god's name around flippantly like saying like oh my omg you know you're not you're misusing his name okay and we think about it it's not that big of a deal it's just it's just a name it's just a word But is it just a word for God? God's name is equated with his character. So there's two ways you can misuse God's name. Number one, you can use it as a cuss word. Or two, you can use it flippantly without cussing. And when I mean flippant, I mean you can just kind of throw it around. Or or, or a third way you can do it, you can actually um, misuse God's name by misrepresenting God. And that would be like a false prophet. Or you say something about God that's not true. Or you teach something about God that's not true to his character. That's using his name in vain. Okay? And so God's name is very, very important. He ties meaning to his name. And so in Exodus 9, earlier, when God says to Pharaoh, Hey, listen, Pharaoh. I'm hardening your heart. I'm raising you up. I'm doing all of this to show you my power because you think you're the king. You're not in charge. I created you. I'm in charge. And number two, this is going to be heard throughout the whole earth. Now, do you guys remember what happened? When they passed through the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army all died. Pharaoh died, right? It says all of them drowned. Do you remember what happened? If we're in Exodus, we might as well go there and look. I wasn't planning on camping out in Exodus, but hey, I think it's in chapter um, 11. Let's look here real quick. I want you just to notice. No, it's not 11. It's going to be in, um, yeah, the crossing of the Red Sea. Okay. Um, But what I want you to show you is this. Okay. There's a st- Okay, let's see here. Oh. There's a statement in there where maybe it's in the Song of Moses. Oh yeah, here we go. Yeah, it's in the Song of Moses. Notice what um, verse 14 says. uh, Exodus chapter 15, verse 14. I knew it was in there after. So look and see what happened as a result of God's power being shown. Did his name get proclaimed in all the earth? Look at verse 14. The peoples have heard. The peoples. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab, and the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fell upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. Who does he mention there? Different nations around them. The Philistines, the Canaanites, the Moabites, the Edomites. So who heard... Was this just a localized thing where just the Egyptians heard about what God did? Who heard about it? It spread. So much so that by the time you get to Joshua, many, many years later, Rahab had heard about it. All the, it, the God's fame had spread because he raised up power to show, um, to show Pharaoh who was really in charge. So his name did get proclaimed on the earth. How was his name proclaimed? Did people have to go out and proclaim it? Or did they just have to hear about his power being shown? When you hear about the greatest, Egypt was the greatest nation in the world. When you hear that the greatest nation in the world, their chariots and their leader were all drowned in a sea and the people, 600,000 of them men, plus women and children, probably 2 million, walked through and didn't drown, do you have to say much? God's power is on display and his name goes out to the earth. Psalm chapter 8, verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Now, there's different ways the psalmist could have written that. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your grace in all the... I mean, it's an old song, right? He could have said grace. He could have said power. He could have said holiness. But what does he say? O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name. Where? Where? In all the... So what is God's ultimate desire? God's ultimate desire is he has a passion for his glory, that his name, his character, who he is, would be manifest to the entire world. So why do we do missions? Let me give you a John Piper quote. Think about this for a minute. Missions exists because worship does not. Think about that for a moment. Why do we do evangelism and missions? Because there are people right now that aren't worshiping the name of God and God's desire is that all peoples would bow down and worship Him in His name. So the reason we do missions is because there's not a lot of worshipers out there. They're worshiping other things. They're worshiping idols, but they're not worshiping God through Jesus Christ. Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name now the psalmist could have just said we trust in the lord our god but what does he say we trust in the name now what is he saying there let's let's make this an application to our culture obviously we don't have horses and chariots today but what is what's the imagery of horses and chariots at the psalmist what's that culture's imagery what 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 would that what would that be an equivalent for in our culture today tanks military it's, it's a military image some trust in the military. Some trust in the government. It would be anything that you see around you that gives you security because of where you live in, in your nation. Okay? And so, as a nation of America, do we put our ultimate trust in our government? No, no. <laughs> do we put our ultimate trust in our president, in our Supreme Court, in our Congress, in our United States military? Do we put our ultimate trust in our IRA? Do we put our ultimate trust in the stock market? Do we put our ultimate trust? What do we? It's it's like some trust in those things. Some trust. Some trust in those things. I would say most. But we. Who's the we there? Believers. We trust in the name of the Lord. Why do we trust in the name? Because the name of the Lord means His character. It's not just we trust in like just this generic name. The name carries the character of God. Psalm one twenty four verse eight. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Again, he could have just said, our help is in the Lord. But he said, our help is in the name of the Lord. Again, the name meaning his character, his power, who he is. And that speaks of his being creator. This is a great verse. You might want to, if you have your Bible, this is a good one to underline. It's a good proverb. Proverbs 18.10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. Now, he could have just said, the Lord is a strong tower. But what does he say? The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs to it and is safe. Now, again, imagery here. We don't really run into strong towers, do we? But back in that culture where you had armies coming at you and you had fortified cities and you had to go into a tower to be safe, the imagery is the name of the Lord provides protection. He provides safety. He provides security. He provides strength to you. It's in his name because his name conveys who he is, his character. Jeremiah 10.6 There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. And we could probably go on and on, but these are just some examples of some scriptures that talk about the importance of the name of God. So where we're going to go on this trajectory through this study is we're going to study the names of God, the specific. Now, we're not going to do all 700. we will be a lot of them. We'll probably go now until the middle of May when we finish. But some of these you may never have heard of before, and so a lot of these come from the Hebrew especially in the Old Testament. Now we're going to get to the New Testament, look at some names for Jesus, but we're going to start where the Bible starts, and tonight we're going to explore three names of God that show up very early in the Bible, Genesis and Exodus, okay? Because we've got to start from the beginning of how God reveals himself. The Bible doesn't start in Matthew. It starts in Genesis, okay? So the first name of God that we're going to look at is the name Elohim, that is the translated word God. So when you see God, G-O-D, in your Old Testament, God, that's the word Elohim, God. But really what it means is strong creator. So let's turn to Genesis 1.1. You guys know Genesis 1.1. In the beginning... Elohim, God, created the heavens and the earth. This is the basic word for God in the Bible, Elohim. But the very first way that it's used in the Bible, it's equated with God's creation. But now let me just ask you something. Have you ever had a kid come up to you, or maybe you've asked this, or your grandkid, or your child? Daddy? Mommy, where did God come from? Everybody ever asked that? Where did God? You just had somebody ask that the other day in school. Two days ago. Literally, two days ago, one of Don's students, where did God come from? You ever asked that question? Where did God come from? How does the Bible answer that? Does the Bible answer that question? No, the Bible assumes God is already there. Because what's the very first word of the Bible? In the beginning, God, God's already assumed. Francis Schaeffer, the great theologian of the 20th century, referred to him as the God who is there. He's already on the scene. He's already there. He has no beginning. He has no end. He's there. And when it says God created, it's the Hebrew word bara, created. That word bara, two things about that word. Number one, it's only used of God. It's never used of a human, like to create pottery or to create weapons. It's only used of God. And number two, it means to create out of nothing. So God is the unique creator who created out of nothing because he was already there before the nothing was even there. God was there. He's the everlasting God. Now, Psalm chapter 90, verse 2 says this. Before the mountains were brought forth, or you had ever formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Before anything was created, before you created the mountains, before you had formed the earth, before you created the world, you are from everlasting to everlasting, which means what? He's from everlasting to everlasting, meaning what? He has no beginning. He has no end. He's always existed. He will always exist. And before anything existed, God was already there. So He's the strong creator. Elohim means strong creator. The self-existent God. Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaim His handiwork. The heavens declare the glory of God. Romans 11. Thirty-three through thirty-six. Oh, now let's just stop right there. Sometimes we just pass over. Oh, <laughs> oh. Can you guys tell me what has Paul been talking about in Romans one through chapter ten? Salvation, justification our new birth, all the blessings of salvation. He's been talking about the sovereignty of God, the glory of God, the salvation of God, the grace of God. And then at the very end of Romans 11, he goes, oh, wow. The depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Inscrutable means we can't figure it out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? No one. Who has been his counselor? Job's friends thought they were. Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So how do you think Paul said that, oh? Was it kind of like, oh? (laughs) Oh? Or was it, oh? (laughs) Oh! (laughs) Oh! I mean we don't know. We just know that for some reason it's in the Bible and it was Paul's expression of I can't even begin to put into words who God is. This is my best attempt under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's unsearchable. I can't figure him out. He's deep. Who's known the mind of the Lord? We can't even jump into his mind and figure him out. We can't give him any counsel. We can't give him advice. We could never repay him with any gift because everything belongs to him. Everything comes from him. He alone receives the glory forever and ever. Amen. He is the Elohim. He's the strong creator. Oh! Now, my question is when you think about God, do you think that way? Or you just kind of walk through life God's my homeboy, God's the cool captain up in the sky. He's my cosmic Santa Claus. He's my 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 bellhop that gives me gets me out of what I need. He's kind of the the old grandpa that smiles down on me and gets me out of a jam. Or do you approach God with? Oh. Oh. Somebody has said Romans should be called R O H M A N S. You should spell Romans Romans with O in there because there's that O. And then at the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter four eleven. Again, speaks of God being the Creator. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And let me give you another Jonathan Edwards. I've given you two tonight. The Divine and Supernatural Light sermon, where he talks about the honey. There's a difference between, like you could, like what's the difference? Let's let's make the Jonathan Edwards um, analogy here. You can say, honey, that's interesting. That's an interesting substance. Or you can taste the honey and go what? Oh, that's honey. That tastes really good. Okay, so this is Jonathan Edwards, another sermon he had, which basically his sermon's like, why did God create the world? It's called The End for Which God Created the World. He sums up it this way. He says, the great end of God's works, why God created it which is so variously expressed in Scripture, is indeed but one. There's one reason why God does everything. And this one end is most properly and comprehensively called what? The glory of God. So Jonathan Edwards would say, the chief thing that God does above all things in the creation of the world, in anything, is to bring himself glory. And we may say, well, that makes God pretty egotistical because doesn't God want it all about himself? He's a megalomaniac because he always wants everything to be about him. C.S. Lewis struggled with that. C.S. Lewis was reading the Psalms, and C.S. Lewis said, I have a problem with God because this God wants everything to be about him. Who gives him the right to have everything be about him? He's kind of a megalomaniac. And it bothered C.S. Lewis to think, why, is everything, why does God want everything to be about him and his glory? Until C.S. Lewis kind went on the journey and realized, oh, yeah. He's the only one that's worthy. He's the only one that's deserving. If it was said of humans, like if I walked into a room and said, hey, everything's got to be about me, you guys would think, he's kind of selfish. He's kind of egotistical. He's kind of all into himself because I'm a sinful, finite human being. But if you're God, do you have the sovereign right to be all about yourself. And the joy of God is that he shares that with us. He doesn't keep that to himself. That's why God created Jonathan Edwards is saying the reason God created was to put His glory on display so that we could enjoy Him. Yes, it's all about God, but He does that so that we can enjoy Him. So we get our maximum enjoyment in God when we bring glory to God. And that's that's what Jonathan Edwards is arguing there. Isaiah 40, 28. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. Okay, He's the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary, his understanding is unsearchable. Have we seen the theme here about God's understanding being unsearchable? What are, what are, what are they saying? What's, what's Paul saying? What's Isaiah saying? We can't even begin to figure out who God is. He's unsearchable. Does that mean that we never know who God is? No, because God's revealed to us what we... Here's what I would say. God has revealed to us what we need to know. What we don't need to know, God's kept from us. And when we get to heaven, we may still not fully figure that out. We may spend eternity discovering who God ultimately is. I don't know. But what we do need to know, He's revealed to us. Is everything in the is everything about God in the Bible? He's only given us what we need to know for salvation and what we need to know about Him. So there's some things about God. And even the things that we do know, we still kind of scratch our heads and say, Wow, there's... There's some greatness to God that I just really don't quite understand. That's kind of what, what faith is. If you knew everything, if you were God, yeah. you wouldn't need Him. You would be your own Savior. Isaiah 44, 24. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you in from the womb, I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by Myself. I made all things. Elohim, strong Creator. And then Jeremiah. Here's another ah, or this is oh. This is not ah, this is oh. I mean, this is not oh, this is ah. So Paul said, oh! Jeremiah says, ah! So it's important when you come across ohs and ahs in the Bible. They mean something. They're not just there to fill in the gap. It's ah. This is an old song to ah Lord God. "'Thou hast made the heavens and the earth by thy great power.'" And by thine outstretched hand, nothing is too difficult for thee. You guys remember that song? Nothing is too difficult. All right. You show steadfast love to thousands, but you repay the guilt of fathers to their children after them. O oh, great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts. Ah oh, Lord God, it is you who made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. I want to, I want to introduce you guys to a metaphor that the Bible uses, especially in Exodus. Let me ask you a question. Does God literally have an arm? No. Does God the Father have an arm? No, because He is spirit. He doesn't have a body. So how can God save by His outstretched arm if He doesn't have an arm? It's a anthropomorphism. (laughs) What is that? No, I, I won't use that word. That just means, an anthropomorphism means You are giving human-like qualities to God to help us understand. God's using baby talk there. Okay, obviously God the Father doesn't have a hand because he's spirit. But what is that outstretched arm or the outstretched hand? What does the arm of the Lord represent in the Bible? Go back and read the Exodus. When God is talking to Moses, God says, I'm going to deliver you by my outstretched arm. When he's talking to Pharaoh, he says, I'm doing this to show my power of my outstretched arm. When they get through the Red Sea, what do they say? God, you've done this through your outstretched arm. The psalm speaking back to Exodus say, God has done this by his outstretched arm. Here, Jeremiah says, you've done this by your outstretched arm. What does the arm of the Lord represent then? His power, his creative power. Okay? The arm of the Lord, the strong arm of the Lord. Elohim is the creator. So here's the bottom line on Elohim. Here's what we should think about. I'm going to kind of get this down to like when you think of Elohim, what should you think about? When we think of the name Elohim, we should automatically worship God as sovereign creator. So as our creator. Creator. Ah, oh, Lord God, you've made the heavens and the earth. You've, you've created all things from everlasting to everlasting. You are the Creator. You made the heavens and the earth. This is worshiping God as our Creator. Okay? Do you think we as Christians talk enough about God as Creator? Do you think a lot of our songs that we sing talk about God as Creator? If there's a weakness in Christianity, I think that we assume it, but we don't praise him for it. And why is it so important to worship God as creator? What, are we, what, what battle are we fighting in our culture that started way back in the 1850s with a guy named Charles Darwin? What are we fighting in our culture? Regardless of how you slice it, there's people out there that say, there is no God, there is no creator. Even if they, even if they, um, like cave in and say, "Okay, it may not be God, but there's intelligent, there's intelligent designer." Okay, so even if there's an intelligent designer, are you accountable to that intelligent designer? Maybe or not. Maybe or maybe not. We have a personal God who's created us, and because He's created us, we're accountable to Him. But that's not what our culture wants to hear. What does our culture want to say? I am accountable to only me, and as long as what I do doesn't hurt anybody, I should be able to do what I dang well please. That's basically what our culture says, right? So, when it comes to morals or it comes to ethics or it comes to walking in holiness, you have people basically saying, God, I, I, don't, I don't care what you say. I don't care how you create. I don't care how you ordain the world. I'm living in direct rebellion to you as my creator. Um, and that's, that's, that's sin. So Elohim, we obviously want to think about God as our sovereign creator. Okay, next big word. Okay, so Elohim, remember, generic word for, not generic, but when you see the word God in the Old Testament, that's Elohim. Now, there's another word that shows up And this is the word Lord, and it'll be in all capitals, L-O-R-D, in all caps, in your Bible. This is the Hebrew word, the second word, Yahweh, Yahweh. And I call this the unchanging I Am, Yahweh. Now, let's see the first time the word Yahweh shows up. Let's go to Genesis. It shows up fairly early in the Bible. shows up after Cain and Abel. if you remember Cain kills Abel it looks like the seed of the serpent's going to win over the seed of the woman but then Adam and Eve have another son Seth who becomes the son of the promise and through Seth's line eventually comes Noah. look at um, verse 26 of Genesis chapter 4 Genesis 4:26. 4, To Seth also was born a son, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of Yahweh, the Lord. It's the first time the word of the Lord shows up in the Bible, Yahweh. Do you see how it's in all caps in your Bible? It's important. Every translation has it in all caps. It's Yahweh, the Lord. Now, what is this related to? The very first time the word Yahweh shows up, what, what are people doing? What does it mean they're calling on the name of the Lord? What does that mean? It's another word for prayer. They're praying. Okay? This word is often equated with prayer and worship. Okay? Let's go to Genesis 12, 8. After Abraham is called of God, God saves Abraham by grace. God chooses Abraham to be the father of many nations. God takes him out of pagan idolatry as a moon worshiper in Ur, the Chaldeans, modern day Iraq. And then Abraham worships. So go to Genesis chapter 12, verse 8. This is Abraham, or Abram, before God changes his name. From there, he moved to the hill country on the east side of Bethel, which is an important place for. Bethel was an important place, both Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all three of the patriarchs. Bethel was where they always came back to. Pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east, and there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the... Does that sound almost like exactly what it said back when Seth's sons began to call upon the name of the Lord? What does Abraham do? He calls upon the name of the Lord, and what's it equated with there? Building an altar of worship. So... When you think of Yahweh, the first time it shows up in the Bibles, it's with worship. They're calling on the name of the Lord in worship. They're praying to the Lord in worship. They're building an altar to Yahweh. Uh, Let's go to Genesis 26. This is um, Isaac, Abraham's son. So Seth's family called upon Yahweh. Abraham built an altar and called upon Yahweh. What did Abraham's son Isaac do? Genesis 26, 25. This is Isaac. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord, Yahweh. Same exact terminology. Called upon the name of Yahweh. Called upon the name of Yahweh. And what is he doing there? He's building an altar. Okay? So... It's this whole idea that in Genesis, in Genesis, God just reveals himself as the Lord. Call upon the name of the Lord. It's just Yahweh, the Lord. But in Exodus, when God shows up to Moses, God gives Moses more information on what his name really means. Okay? So let's go to Exodus chapter 3. And let's see what God reveals to Moses because the, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, they just knew God as Yahweh, the Lord. God reveals himself to Moses and expands upon what that really means okay? in the burning bush. So let's, let's just go to chapter 3. It's a very famous passage in Exodus. It's the burning bush episode. So Exodus chapter 3. Now, Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, let me just help you out. Horeb and Sinai are the same mountain. I don't know why it's used. Sometimes it's called Horeb and sometimes it's called Sinai, but it's the same mountain. So, this is before he even gets the Ten Commandments. He's going to Mount Sinai. So, Moses always has this relationship with Mount Sinai. It's just called Horeb here. Okay, verse 2. It's called the mountain of God, actually, because Elijah goes to the mountain of God, too. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the... What does your Bible say? Lord, Lord, Yahweh, saw that he turned aside to see... God, Elohim, both names are used there, interesting. Yahweh and Elohim in the same verse. When Yahweh saw that he turned aside to see him, Elohim called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father. And what's he linking this back to? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, we just looked and we just looked in Genesis. What did the God, what did Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob call God? The Lord, predominantly. And they called him other things. We'll see here in just a minute. But Yahweh. Moses hid his face, he was afraid to look at God. Now let's just stop right there. God says, take off your shoes, because you're standing on holy ground. Was there anything special about the sand that Moses was standing on? Why was it holy ground? Because God was there. Why was Moses afraid to look at God? Number one, it's freaky enough to see a bush not burning. Okay, just freaky enough. If you come across, like you're going through the mountains and hiking, there's a bush. And it's burning, but it's not burning up. It just keeps burning and burning and, wow, it just keeps burning. Eventually what's going to happen, it's going to start smoldering. It just keeps burning. And you go closer to the burning bush, and that's not freaky enough. The bush speaks to you. And the bush says, I'm God. Take off your sandals. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So not only is the, just the sight of a burning bush, but almost every time God shows up in His power in Exodus and the Old Testament, sometimes it's related to fire, when, especially when God calls people to ministry. It's related to fire. And so he's afraid to look at God because he's, he realizes he's in the holy presence of God. Now let's keep going. Let's see what God has sa- says to him out of the burning bush. Verse 7. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering. And I've come down to deliver them, deliver them, to, to save them, to rescue them, to redeem them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, Israel out of Egypt. Now, if that's not scary enough. I see a burning bush. The burning bush talks. It's God. And the next thing God says is, you're going back to the most powerful man in the world, and you, Moses, are going to be the one that's going to bring them back to this land. Now, what do we know about Moses? Why is he in where he's at? Because he fled, because he murdered and got caught. And so for 40 years, he's been hiding out on the backside of nowhere, tending sheep. And God says, I want you to go right back into the thick of where you came from. And then Moses starts, you know, he gives five excuses. This is the first of his five excuses. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children out of Israel? Who am I? I'm, I'm a Nobody. I'm not anybody special. He said, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And we know that happens, right? What's this mountain? It's Mount Sinai. Second thing that Moses says, okay, well, if you go with me, Moses said to God, verse 13, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, what is his name? What shall I say to them? that's interesting. What does Moses ask? They're going to want to know what the name of this God is. Is it just, I mean, notice what God says in verse 14. It's very important. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent you or has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So God gives two names there, right? I am who I am, but tell them it's the Lord. So which one is it? Is it the I am that I am, or is it the Lord? And the answer is yes, because the word Yahweh, the word Lord, is the derivative of I am. Stewart, who's written a very good commentary in the New American Commentary, says this about how to translate that Hebrew word, I am. Quote, The name should be understood as referring to Yahweh's being, the creator and sustainer of all that exists, And thus, Lord of both creation and history, all that is and all that is happening, a God active and present in historical affairs. Now, when you look at that translation, I am who I am. Now, what what does I am mean? I exist, right? I am the existing one. Did anybody cause God to exist? Has he always existed? So he's the always existing one. But does he also cause things to exist? Does he cause things to be? That's also what this word means. It can mean I am or I exist, but it really means Yes, I am, but I also cause things to be in existence. And not only do I cause those, but I sustain those things. So not only am I the one that's always existed, I'm self-existent. Nobody brought me into existence. I brought everything into existence. If anything's going to exist, I'm going to keep it existing. I am who I am. And it sounds very close. Yahweh, the Lord, sounds very close to that. Let me just ask you a question. Yahweh. What does it sound like? Like A breath. Yahweh. It's almost like the, the very breath or existence of God. He is that He is. John Piper says this. God named Himself Yahweh. That is the absolutely existing One. The One who simply is who did not come into being and does not go out of being and never changes in his being because he's absolute being. He depends on nothing for his being and all else depends upon him. That's, that's a pretty great definition. He never came into being. He doesn't ever go out of being. He never changes in his being because he's absolute being. He depends on nothing for his being and every other being depends upon Him for their being. Okay? Now, Yahweh also, Lord, is God's covenant personal name. It's this covenant personal name, the Lord. But with this whole I am that I am, I exist that I exist, I cause to exist, I sustain. Here is also what this word "I am" or Yahweh means: the God who has no needs. Anytime you hear somebody say "God needs dot dot dot," or God's trying to, there is a song that I think I don't even know what the song is. Don, I kind of make fun of it. She like it's it's about God's trying to get these people saved. How would you respond to God's trying to get people saved? Does God try? Because that means if he tries, he could possibly fail. fail. Uh, He gave his best effort. God tried really hard, but at the end of the day, somehow human will or human power overpowered God. God has no needs. Job 26, 14. Behold... These are but the, let me give you a perspective here. In the book of Job, a lot of times his friends and even Job are talking about all the things God has done in creation, all these magnificent, you know, cosmic things that God has done in creation. And this statement comes in chapter 26, 14. Behold, these, all the things they've been talking about, are but the outskirts of his ways. And how small a whisper do we hear of him? But the thunder of his power, who can understand? These are but the outskirts of his ways. So think about this. <laughs> the universe is but the outskirts of God's ways. What are the outskirts? When you go to the outskirts of town, you're on the fringes of kind of, okay, which means there's a bunch of stuff still you know, in there. So what we see in the universe, even with the greatest Hubble telescope, is just but the out... What what Job's saying here is just the outskirts of God. And it's a small whisper. Creation's like a whisper compared... Like if God were to give His full voice, what would it sound like? Who can understand the thunder of His power? Job 41.11 this is God speaking. At the very end of Job, after all of his friends come and give him, some give good and bad advice, a mixture. And finally, God comes and basically says, Brace yourself like a man. Speaks to Job out of the whirlwind and says, Where were you when I created? And it kind of goes on all this, you know, where were you when I did all this? But listen to what God says to Job Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. What's God saying there? Has anybody ever given me anything that I'm in debt to that person? i got to pay him back? No, everything you have, I've given to you. Your life, your breath, this world, this creation, everything under the whole heaven is mine. Psalm 102, 25-27. Of old, you laid the foundation of the earth. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same. Your years have no end. He's the I Am, the one who is. And then Paul in his sermon on Mars Hill in Acts chapter. 17 gives a very interesting statement about just like he's talking to these pagans about their unknown god and he makes a very interesting statement about god here the god who made the world and everything in it okay he's creator being lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. What's Paul saying? God doesn't need us. God can't be contained in a temple that we build. As a matter of fact, God's the one that created you. God's the one that gave you breath. God's the one that gave you everything. He's the creator of heaven and earth. He has no needs. He's the God of no needs. And then we've already looked at Romans 11, the ah, oh, or oh. For who has known the mind of our Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift that he might be repaid? For to him and through him and through, through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. So we've looked at Elohim. God is our sovereign creator. Yahweh, or I am, or the Lord. When we think of God as Yahweh, or the Lord, or the I am, we should worship him in prayer, as the self-existing one who has no needs but can meet every one of our needs. It's often equated with prayer. Why do you pray? Because you have needs and you're going to the only one who has no needs because he is the great I Am. He always exists. Okay, He's the Lord. So Elohim, God. Yahweh, Lord. We're going to look at one other tonight. Elohim. Shaddai, El Shaddai. Now, just to let you know, anytime this little L shows up in front of something, that's short for God, like Elohim. Um, It's God of something, like God hyphen. um, It's a derivative of of the word Elohim. So it's God. It's not just God Elohim. It's God and then another description. So El Shaddai. This means Almighty Sovereign. Okay, so. Elohim related to God as creator. Yahweh related to the Lord as the I am, that I am the self-existing one. This one really deals with God's power, his sovereign power. So the word Shaddai conveys power and might and sovereignty. Sovereignty. But here's where it comes into play. Most importantly, it means that God is faithful he's sovereignly powerfully faithful to fulfill his promises his covenant promises to his people okay it can also be translated el shaddai can also be translated he who is sufficient or he who overpowers so it's really dealing with the sufficient power for god to fulfill his promises now, almost almost every time El Shaddai is used in the Bible, especially in Genesis, it's almost always accompanied by the word bless. And what promise did God make to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob that he would bless them with the covenant promise of being a nation of having a promised land of of having many descendants. So let's turn to Genesis 17. This is where the first time the word El Shaddai shows up when God gives a promise to, to Abraham. Genesis 17, 1 through 8. This is the covenant of circumcision. Um, this is the first time God refers to himself as El Shaddai. Okay, So see how different names? Sometimes he's Elohim, God. Sometimes he refers to himself as Yahweh, the Lord. Here he's going to refer to himself as El should I? So Genesis chapter seventeen verse one. Let me get a drink of water here real quick before we start. While you guys are getting there, when Abram, when Abram was ninety nine years old, the Lord, the Lord. Okay, what word what, is that? You guys tell me. Yahweh, right? Lord and okay. The Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, "I am God." Almighty. Do you have a footnote? In your Bible, look down your footnote. What does it say? Hebrew, El Shaddai. Okay, so our translations usually translate it God Almighty. So it's got the El, God, Elohim, Almighty, Shaddai. So God says, I am El Shaddai, I'm God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham." I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you, your offspring after you, the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Now, you guys tell me in context. Right after God announces to Abram, that he is El Shaddai, what does God go on to promise that he's going to do for Abraham? Make a, Make a covenant. And what's the covenant going to be? You're going to be exceedingly fruitful. You're going to have a nation. You're going to have descendants. You're going to, kings are going to come from you. You're going to inherit the land. I'm going to be your God. I'm, I'm covenant. So, El Shaddai really goes hand in hand with the blessings of the covenant. This covenant. And so, when we think about God making a covenant, what is that? A promise. God is making a promise that He's going to do something. So, does God ever back out on His promises? No. Is God always faithful to fulfill His promises? Okay. Why is God always faithful to fulfill His promises? Because He is El Shaddai, which means what? He's sufficient He's overpowering, He's sovereign, He's almighty, He's the one who's going to do what He says He's going to do and fulfill His covenant promises. Okay. In verse 8, we see the introduction of how God would relate to Israelites, I will be their God. All throughout the Old Testament, you'll hear the repetition of this phrase, you will be my people and I will be your God. That's this whole idea of God's El Shaddai covenant faithfulness to them. So God sovereignly chose Abram to be the father, not only of the Israelite people, but of all nations. And ultimately, notice what it says there in verse 6. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. Who eventually comes from Abraham's descendants? What kings? David. And David's dynasty. And eventually, what ultimate king comes from Abraham? Jesus. Jesus. And how are all the nations blessed through Abraham? Through Jesus. Okay? Now, God told Abraham, I am El Shaddai. I'm making a promise to you to bless you in this covenant. I'm going to fulfill it. Now, do you think God makes the same covenant promise to Isaac? Yes. So let's look at Genesis 28.3 and see God making his covenant promise to Isaac. I'm sorry. Yeah, Isaac. 28.3. God Almighty. Now, where's your footnote down there say? Hebrew, El Shaddai. El Shaddai bless you Make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Again, what is El Shaddai associated with? Blessings of the covenant. Every time God gives the covenant blessing to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, what word does he use? El Shaddai. I'm, because it means I'm the I'm the sufficient God who's going to come through on my promises. I'm faithful to fulfill my promises. I'm the El Shaddai. I'm the sovereign God who's going to come true on my promises. Now, do you think God's going to do that to Jacob? He gave it to Abraham. He gave it to Isaac. Let's go to Genesis 35, verse 11, and see Him give it to Jacob. And again, what we expect? Will we expect to hear the same verbiage that we've heard about blessing and covenant and? and all those things. All right, G- Genesis 35, 11. Actually, let's go, um, let's start in verse 9. God appeared to Jacob again when he came to Padanaram Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am El Shaddai. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Okay, what does he reiterate to Jacob? He tells Abraham, I am El Shaddai, I'm gonna bless you with covenant promises. To Isaac, I am El Shaddai, I'm gonna bless you with covenant promises. To Jacob, I am El Shaddai. I'm going to bless you with covenant promises. So El Shaddai means the one who's sovereignly sufficient to come true on his promises. Okay? Now let's see where else that term Shaddai or El Shaddai shows up in the Old Testament. This is to the patriarchs, but it also shows up in other places. As a matter of fact, I love how the Bible fits together. Because notice what God, Yahweh, the Lord, says to Moses in Exodus chapter 6. God says to Moses, I appeared to Abraham, to Jacob, to Isaac and Jacob as El should I? Did we just read that three times? Okay. So Obviously, the Bible's consistent, okay? We saw it three times in Genesis. We get to Exodus, and God says, I showed up, I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but my name, the Lord, what's that? Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which you lived as sojourners. Do you see how it's tied to the land, it's tied to the covenant, it's tied to the promise, it's tied to the blessings? God is telling Moses, listen, the reason that you're going to take the Israelites out of Egyptian captivity is because as the El Shaddai, I'm making the promise that I gave to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob come true through you when you lead them out. You're going to, and eventually, Joshua is going to be the one that leads them in there. It's interesting. God did not reveal His name, the Lord, to them. He called Himself El Shaddai, when did God make known his name? I am the Lord. He made it known to Moses in the burning of the bush. Okay? All right. So, let's go some other places in the Old Testament where we find the word Shaddai or El Shaddai, Almighty, Sovereign. Job eleven seven. 7. Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? And what would be the answer? Does anybody here know the deep things of God? If the universe is the outskirts of his ways, then what are the deep things of God? <laughs> Can you find out the limit? Of the, does, the, does the Almighty have a limit? No. Okay, Go back and read Job. Just sit down. I, I encourage you, sit down and read Job in one sitting. It'll probably take you about a couple hours. And sometimes it's hard to trudge through, but by the time you get out of Job, you really have this expanded vision of who God is. It's pretty, pretty amazing. Job 42.2. This is what Job says at the end. One of my favorite verses on God's sovereignty. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Let's just stop right there. I know you can do what? All things. All things. Can God do all things? Does God have, is there anything that can limit God? No, because he says, and that no purpose of yours can be what does thwarted mean? Change, stop, stymied, sidetracked. So, if God has a purpose, what's a purpose? A plan or a decree? If God has a purpose, can anybody stop it? Is it going to be accomplished? Yes. Why? Because God can do all things. Why can He do all things? Because He's Elohim, the Creator. He's the self existing One, Yahweh, and He's also El Shaddai. The all sufficient, powerful one. He can do all things. Psalm 91, 1 through 2. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the El Shaddai, the Almighty. I will say to the Lord Yahweh, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. You got all three words in that verse. Let's translate it in Hebrew. We'll make, well, half Hebrew, half English. Okay, you guys help me. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of El Shaddai. I will say to yeah. Yahweh, my refuge and my fortress, my Elohim in whom I trust. So even within one verse or a couple of verses in the psalm, you've got three names of God right there. That's pretty awesome. You can interchange those names. And sometimes when you read the psalms, you're just kind of coming across these words and thinking, okay, these are just words that the, but these words mean something now, don't they? Okay? He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will be in the shadow, in the shadow of El Shaddai, in the shadow of the one who's covenantly faithful to fulfill his promises because he's sovereign. I will say to the Lord, I will say to the self existing one, I will say to the I am, I will say to the one that has no needs, my refuge and my fortress, my Elohim, my Creator, in whom I trust. Okay? Let's go to the New Testament. I know we haven't gone there much tonight, I don't think we've gone there at all. This is how Paul kind of ends his prayer in Ephesians chapter 3 20 through 21 now to him who's able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever amen now to him who's able to do what uh, some some things not just Think about the most expansive thing you can think of or the most outrageous thing you can ask for. God is able to do abundantly more than that. Now, will He always do that? No, but He's able to do that. Why? Because it's His power and it's all about His glory in the church throughout all generations forever and ever through Jesus Christ. So, let's give a summary statement about El Shaddai here. Whoops. When we think well you guys can read it on your sheet when we think of the name El Shaddai we should worship God as mighty to bless us with fulfilled promises mighty to bless us with fulfilled promises okay so you guys let's do a little bit of review Elohim what should you think of or why should you worship God what what word should associate with Elohim creator what about Yahweh? I am the self-existing one. El Shaddai, the sufficient all-powerful sovereign who's faithful to his promises, okay? So, as we come to a close tonight, do you guys have any other questions? But ultimately, you know, when you study stuff like this, again, it should be like honey it shouldn't just be where it's like, okay, we've heard, we learned some cool stuff about God tonight. It really should be, you know what? I want to know this God more deeply. I want to understand Him more fully. I want to grow closer to Him. I want to know more about Him. My heart's enthralled. My mind's been filled, but I want my heart to be enthralled. Is there a difference between mind being filled and heart being enthralled? Okay, You need them both, right? Does your mind need to be filled? Yes with truth but does your heart need to be enthralled or captivated and when your mind is filled with truth and your heart's enthralled what should that lead you to do that should lead you to a life that's different because your mind's been changed your heart's been changed and now your your will or your life is changed but so many times in church we just stop at the mind we get our minds filled and we, got, we came and we filled in our you know, we, we we filled in our PowerPoint sheets, and we heard a good talk, and we've got more information. If that's all we do in church, we failed. The information is not an end to itself; it's to lead you to transformation in worship. Just like honey, we can learn all we want about honey, but until you taste it, and it goes down sweet, and it enthralls you, you, you're never going to want more. You know. Are you going to want more honey until you taste it? You can read about it all you want, but until you taste it, you're not going to want more. Now, some of you may not like honey, so the analogy may not go down. But there's nothing better than good honey. And I think Jonathan Edwards got on something there with the honey analogy.